Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. As we move through this long weekend celebrating Canada Day from coast to coast, I've got a stellar lineup of guests that will inspire, educate, and entertain you. And we do so with an added dash of Canadian pride this weekend. It's a time of celebration as Canada revels in a series of significant achievements. We're witnessing unprecedented population growth, enjoying record low unemployment, and boasting the most diversified economy in our 150. 56-year history. Our stock market has been a world beater since 2021, contributing to predictions by 9 out of 10 economists that we're on track to be the best performer among the group of seven developed countries by 2025. Adding to these bragging rights, the Global Livability Index included three of our very own cities, Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto, in the top 10 of its 2023 ranking of the most livable cities in the world. Meanwhile, our inflation rate fell to 3.4% in May, the lowest it's been since June of 2021. So while there's always room for improvement, let's take the weekend to enjoy the positive. We can get back to work after the long weekend. So in the spirit of celebration and continuous growth, here's what's coming up. My first guest is a financial powerhouse making waves in the world of finance and taking a stand against the pink tax. Janine Rogan, founder and CEO of the Wealth Building Academy, is not only empowering women to grow their wealth confidently and profitably, but is also educating us about the hidden form of gender inequality that could be affecting our financial health. With her aptly named book, The Pink Tax, she's here to break down the issue and inspire change. Next, we have Sarah Smeaton, a certified professional coach passionate about empowering women, especially during midlife. She's here to introduce us to the idea of cancer showers and how this concept can change our approach to giving and receiving help during challenging times. Following Sarah, we've got our regular movie maven, Anne Brody, here with your weekend's must-watch list. From Lena Rodriguez's poignant and suspenseful immigration story, So Much Tenderness, to the high-stakes thriller Hijack featuring the iconic Idris Elba, to the revealing documentary on Hollywood heartthrob Rock Hudson, There's Something for Everyone. But what's a long weekend without some travel inspiration? Marie-Hélène Brisson, Director of Visitor Experience at Parks Canada, joins us to take a virtual tour of Canada's stunning landscapes and hidden gems, perfect for those of you planning your summer adventures. A timely discussion follows as we touch upon the recent controversy about the funding of Catholic schools within the public system, ignited by the York Catholic District School Board's decision not to fly the pride flag. Dr. Prachi Srivastava, a tenured associate professor at Western University, specializing in education and global development, will join me to delve into this. Lastly, we're exploring the power of movement with physiotherapist Amanda Morin. Drawing from her experience as an athlete and her passion for the human body, Amanda is here to discuss her children's book, Move with Nature. It's an invitation to change our approach to exercise using nature as an inspiration, especially when it comes to our little ones. 
So sit back, relax, and let me bring some inspiration to your long weekend. Let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. By now, we've all heard of the pink tax, the frustrating reality where products or services marketed to women often cost more than their male equivalents. It's a hidden form of gender inequality that can have a significant impact on a woman's financial health over time. So today, we're diving deeper into this issue with a woman who is making waves in the world of finance. Janine Rogan is the founder and CEO of the Wealth Building Academy, Inc., a platform that educates and empowers women to confidently and profitably grow their wealth. What's more, she has channeled her passion into a book aptly named The Pink Tax. She joins me now. Welcome to What She Said, Janine. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So you're a really strong advocate for financial feminism. So can you elaborate on what financial feminism is and why it's so important in today's society? Yeah, absolutely. Really, when it comes down to it, financial feminism just means financial equality for all. So we've seen, you know, over in the past few hundred years, there is an incredible wealth gap between um, women and men, but also any level of intersectionality. We add that wealth gap, that wage gap gets so much bigger. So really just advocating for people that aren't older white men to have the same opportunities and the same ability to build wealth um, as, as their male counterparts. So what are some key strategies you teach women to help them grow their wealth? Yeah, I would say the top two probably are negotiations. Um, It's super important for everybody to negotiate everything, not just salary. And then the, the one I really focus on with my company is teaching women to invest. I think often women are more risk aware and tend to keep their money in lower risk investments and or cash. And really they're missing out on the ability to grow their wealth and the ability for their money to make money. And I think that empowering them and teaching them what they actually need to do to invest in the stock market and, and grow their wealth is something that will continue to help close the wealth gap. In your experience, what are the common hurdles women face when it comes to managing their finances and and how can they overcome them? You know, like I said, I think often there is a big worry or some scarcity around investing in the stock market, thinking that all their money is going to disappear one day. Um, and, And that's just not the case. I would say the other piece of it, though, is we're just not involved as often in money conversations. It's, you know, within my parents' generation that women weren't even able to open their own bank accounts or have their own mortgages without a co-signer that was either their father or their husband. So when we look at the impacts that our system has had on women's ability to build wealth and women being involved in those conversations, what we really see is that because they weren't involved there, like because they weren't involved then because they couldn't, has extended currently into um, not being as interested or maybe not knowing where to start and, and being overwhelmed with where to even navigate and where to even learn from. How, how do you see the pink tax then? playing a role in financial inequality. Yeah, so the pink tax, you know, traditionally is the the price differential between men's and women's products that are, you know, same volume, same size, um etc. 
And really where I went with the book and where what I kind of preach to my community is that it's so much larger than this. It's obviously women, you know, have less money to start and then they're they're hit with the pink tax as uh, eating into their disposable income and then um, ultimately having less to save and invest. But I think it extends into things like um, not having as high of credit scores, for example, because maybe they're the second uh, card holder on their husband's credit card, or um, they make less money so they don't have access to as much credit. And then that, you know, really going further one step and looking at mortgage rates that women are approved for, and they tend to have higher interest rates. And if we think about why that is, it's probably because their credit scores are lower. So it's really this systemic piece of understanding how the system is actually impacting women ability to build wealth and have economic equality on a daily basis. So it's it's really good for us to be aware of this and and keep it at the forefront. But do you give practical tips for ways to push back on that to save money in your book? Yeah, absolutely. The way I've written the book, I think there's kind of three different categories for people to act. One is from an individual perspective. So obviously, you know, saving, investing, negotiating, having the conversations within your own uh, life is really important. The second piece of it, though, is companies. So if you're a leader at a company, if you have decision-making power, um, I think we hold a responsibility to change things and to make it better for the next generation that's coming, um, whether that's in wage transparency or creating policy at work that is supportive of women and, and new parents. And then I think globally, as citizens of whatever country we live in, we have we have a responsibility to look at how we're voting, what policies are being brought in, and, and what laws um, outline how we get to to equal parity when it comes to money because there are countries that are doing the work and I think we can look at look to some of those companies or countries pardon me for examples on what we can actually do. What advice would you give to women who are just starting out on their financial journey? How can they avoid these common pitfalls that you've been talking about and build a strong financial future? Yeah, a few things there. So I always tell people investing as early as you possibly can is like one of your biggest wealth hacks. Um, even starting with like $25. That's what I started with when I was 19. Um, get started building that habit $25 a month, $100 a month, and it will grow um, beyond your wildest dreams in terms of you know compounding returns. But the second piece of it is there is a lot going on and it can be really overwhelming for people to know where to get started because this isn't something that we're taught in school and there are so many pieces of jargon coming at us. So I also tell people that you only really need to do one thing at a time. So if you can take the next month to do one thing for your finances and then the next month do another thing, by the end of the year, you're going to have 12 things that are a positive step in your financial uh, direction of building wealth. And you don't have to have all the answers at the very beginning. We can approach this with a beginner's mindset that we're still learning. I'm still learning. Everybody is still learning. There's always lots to you know consume and learn and apply. So I think just not also being overwhelmed and, and giving yourself some grace when it comes to your, your financial journey. You you touched a little bit about how, you know, financial literacy is not something that we're talking about in, in schools. When it comes to that, how should we be making it more accessible and understandable for everyone, particularly, though, women and girls? I mean, I am trying 
my hardest to get it into curriculums. I there it is very challenging though, um, based on like all the regulations and stuff. But I think you know having the conversations with your kids. Uh, early is something that is a great way to start having those money conversations, especially with your young young girls. Um, and as parents, I think we have a role to play for sure on educating the next generation and not making these topics taboo because we've been told for so long, like, don't talk about money, don't talk about religion, don't talk about politics. But I think so often we don't talk about money and that means that we're giving our power away when it comes to our finances and being able to ask those questions and teach the next generation. So I would even just say having conversations, um, advocating obviously for it to be brought into schools, but that's a bit of a long game when it comes to um, how we impact the the school um, and, and what they teach there. You have a very interesting story about a lemonade stand on mm-hmm. your website. And uh, I'd like to close out this interview, if you wouldn't mind, if you wouldn't mind sharing that story with my listeners. For sure. So I grew up on the south side of Edmonton um, in Alberta, Canada, and there were two little boys, they were twins, uh, that lived down the street and we we started a lemonade stand. So I obviously had a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset back then. And at the end of our, our day's work or whatever, we were splitting up all the coins. So um, I don't know if anyone listening is from the U.S., but in Canada, we have coins for our one and two dollar um, dollars and, and then obviously quarters, et cetera. So um, I think things were either 25 cents or a dollar. Anyways, we had all these coins to separate. And I convinced these two boys that all of the coins had equal value. And in doing so, I then split them up so that I would have the most loonies and toonies, so one and two dollar coins in my pile. So I had the most money. Now, my dad came later and he knew that I knew the difference between a dollar and a quarter um, and that they had different values. So he, you know, he he was really good about it. He, you know, he educated all of us that not all the coins have the same value. But um, it was, it was, I, 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 I laugh now, and I, I think, you know, maybe I was fighting the patriarchy. Maybe I was trying to get wage equality back then. But I think really what it comes down to is at an early age, I, I knew that having more money was better and meant more choices or more freedom. Probably back then it meant more like five cent candies from the store. But um, yeah, it's, it's a funny story. I. I say that I've never tried to hoodwink anyone again in the book um, because, you know, obviously honesty and integrity are very important to me as, as a CPA. But, um, you know, it's it's funny to look back at, at two or three-year-old, I think I was three or four, um, three or four-year-old Janine and see what she was thinking. I love it. All right, Janine, I want people to be able to connect with you, find the book, keep up with you. Where can they do that? Absolutely. So the book is available kind of wherever books are sold online. Um, you can check that out at pinktaxbook.com. I am all over LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. My handle is at Janine Rogan. And my company, The Wealth Building Academy, has courses that educate women on how to invest and build a profitable investment portfolio. And you can check that out at thewealthbuildingacademy.com. All right. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. I 
Have you ever heard of a cancer shower? This concept may change the way you think about giving and receiving help during tough times. Sarah Smeaton is a certified professional coach and facilitator with a passion for empowering women, especially during midlife. She runs an online group coaching program called Ignite Midlife and works privately with clients across Canada, the US and the UK. She is joining me here today, though, to shed light on how we can use the concept of cancer showers to destigmatize the act of asking for help and the form that support can take. Welcome to What She Said, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Candace. I was delighted to hear from you because I love this concept. And my friends and I had done some something similar for one of my friends years ago is we had a cancer party, which sounds counterintuitive, but it was really such a memorable moment for all of us. It's burned in our brains. Uh, it showed support and love. So tell me about a cancer shower. I assume it's something similar. Yeah, it is. You know, we, um, our dear friend Karen Ward was diagnosed with cancer and she had just had long COVID for several months. So uh, it was bad timing and there was a fair amount of financial stress. And she's such a generous giving person. We wanted to do something for her. So we started to go fund me. And then she started thinking, hey, you know, it's so funny how hard this has been for me to ask for help, to receive for help. But I, I, wouldn't think twice about inviting people to a shower to celebrate someone's new baby or someone's marriage. So she, it was actually her brainchild to call this the cancer shower. And um, it is very similar to the party, except this way her whole global network can participate. It's virtual. And um, what we decided to do was host workshops because that's the kind of community Karen has. She's curious. She's very engaged. And so there's five workshops that we're hosting that people can take part in. So they donate to the GoFundMe and then they get access to these workshops plus the recordings. Why do you think there's a sense of shame associated with needing and asking for help, especially for those who are typically the givers in the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think we're really prepared for that part of life, to be honest. You know, you, you're, you, you, you get prepared for the good, happy, celebratory milestones, and you're prepared to receive support from your community at those times. But I don't know how much it's modeled. I think it's very much um, in hushed tones and whispers when we go through these harder things. And um, that's something that we want to bring out into the light because there is a lot of hard. And um, and showing love like you did for your friend, like we're doing for Karen, and community and support is just as important in the more difficult parts of life than it is, as it is for the celebratory one. Now, you've talked about giving fatigue. Can you explain yeah. what that is a little bit? And then how the concept of a cancer shower can provide maybe a refreshing approach to this? Yeah, I mean, so giving fatigue, I think there's a lot of um, requests for donations. And, you know, even on Facebook, there's, you know, donate to this for my birthday and donate. To, so there's a lot of uh, asks in this world. And um, everybody has a great cause and a great story. And it's, there's only so much we can do. But when we pose it as a shower, so maybe you are going to bring a $20 gift to the shower, maybe you can just donate $20 and you get something back. It's, it's much more it's, I think it's less charity feeling and more participating in something bigger than yourself. And and we're really hoping that it catches on and it's a, a way that it can support people. People can support their friends. 
So let's talk about that then. Say, say somebody's listening right now and they're thinking, this is a good idea. I'd like to do that. I have a friend going through something similar. I'd like to, to plan. What are some ways people can pull together their own cancer shower? Well, I think the, the first thing to do is to really talk to the person who's going through cancer or really any hard thing and see what it is. What, what do they actually need? Because a lot of times we offer food to people and sometimes people have really stocked freezers of food they'll never eat or they have someone really on deck to make the food. So what is it you need? Is it money? Is it food? Is it drives to places? And and usually I think if you can help the person get the financial support, they can get a lot of the things they need. So um, but really check in with the person. That's number one. Is this something that they would want? And then once they're on board and they think it's a good idea, you um, look around your own community who can help drive this because it is a project and it, it does take, you know, lighter hands make, <laughs> make it less work. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So uh, it is a, a bit of a project, but I would say, um, get together a team, see how much the person who uh, has cancer wants to be involved because the more they can share about it, usually it does help spread the word and engages people. Um, Look around your community and see who do I know that might be willing to donate an hour, an hour and a half or whatever it is to teach or to share or to engage uh, the community that I know will be participating in this. So it could be, you know, um, an online meditation or a yoga class or um, even like a group craft project or a, a book club. Like it really could be anything that your people are are interested in. So um, think about what would make it relevant and, and give it a theme. Ours is superpower cancer shower and each workshop unlocks a superpower that you need in work, in life, in relationships, and and when you're going through hard times. So it's really fun. <laughs> I love this whole concept so much. I think it, it's wonderful. And I hope people really l- go and look you up because you are modeling how this should be done and, and showing people what they can do. And plus, they can get involved with your cancer shower. So mm-hmm. what's the best way for them to connect with you, Sarah? Yeah, so um, probably Instagram is the easiest. Uh, I'm Sarah Smeaton, no H on Sarah, Sarah Smeaton on Instagram, and Karen is Curious Karen Ward. And both of us would have links to her GoFundMe in in our bios, so you can go and learn all about it. All right. And contribute if you want. And all the workshops are recorded, so okay. you can still see them. Fantastic. We're going to put all the links for the GoFundMe and, of course, your Instagram pages in, this, uh, in the liner notes when this goes out on podcast. And Sarah, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Candice. We all really appreciate it. I know Karen really does. No, I've still got a lot of fire left in me. It's that time again, time for Saturday Night at the Movies with Ann Brody. And this week, we're kicking it off with a movie called So Much Tenderness. Well, you know, and it it uh, covers things that are top of mind in many places these days, like immigration and um, danger in one's home country. Lena Rodriguez, who's a Toronto filmmaker, um, has done this. It follows a Colombian environmental lawyer who has been receiving death threats in, in uh, Colombia. So she's got to get out. Uh, the government obviously wants to do what it wants to do regarding the environment there. And she knows that she could be killed if she stays. So she comes up, she's taken across the border in the trunk of a car and uh, makes it to downtown Toronto. 
she's left her daughter behind. So she's concerned about that. Um, and she's trying to rebuild her life. It takes so much trouble. She's she's ill prepared because she left so quickly. You know, it really underlines what can happen to people when they must leave where they are. They must leave in a hurry, and they've got to do so much work to catch up. Uh, so, th- you know, grad bit by bit, she starts to make it work, and then she notices a man on the street. We don't know what he was or what he did, but he's a danger to her. And it just takes on a real emotional drive. So, you know, it it's a very it has a very deliberate pace, this film, but the payoff is tremendous. All right. And that's uh in theaters or is it on it's VOD? Theaters. theaters. Yes. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Uh the next one, I want to talk about Rock Hudson because I remember this story exploding uh, into, I guess, the national news many, many years ago. So this was a fascinating uh, documentary. Yes, he, Rock Hudson was a symbol of uh, male virility and uh, uh, a, a womanizer, not womanizer, someone who was appealing to everybody. And he was always cast in romantic comedies. I mean, 99% of the time. And he strangely or not so strangely, he was always cast as a man who didn't want to sleep with the woman because he thought it would entice her more. So that's kind of strange. Now, his agent looked after most of Hollywood's closeted gay men. Um, He lived openly with a lover, and he was accused from time to time of being lavender, but, you know, nobody really investigated thoroughly or they wanted to protect him because he was obviously worth so much money to the studios. He was considered the biggest star in Hollywood at some points during the 50s and 60s. And, you know, Doris Day did that series of films with him. When he died of AIDS, uh, she was asked about him being gay and she said she didn't know she didn't know him at all, which I found to be incredibly bad, bad behavior. Uh, But anyway, so it's fascinating. He did marry a woman. She was gay. It was organized by his agent, Phyllis Gates. It lasted a couple of years, but he he was never short for lovers. And he didn't especially try to keep it quiet, but the studio certainly did. So we see that, um, you know, this symbol of masculine heterosexual romance was not what what he appeared to be. But I mean, these days, who cares? But back then, it was huge. Well, as we're seeing now, there are people who care, unfortunately. So this is an interesting documentary, timely, I think, really, to to be coming out and and looking at this story. Um, Let's move on to the next one, because I know that you like the uh, headliner in this, Idris Elba. (laughs) Uh, Like, yes, that's a mild word. So... (laughs) Idris Elba is a security uh, agent, intelligence, um, all kinds of private, you know, a private spy kind of thing. So he gets on a plane from uh, uh, Dubai to come to London and terrorists aboard take it over. Now, they're white. They're from London, judging by their accent. And they are relentless and remorseless. I, I, This is one of the most extreme depictions of terrorists on planes that I've seen. So 
the film looks at all the passengers and their reactions, of course, and everyone has a different story that, that they're living out on this plane. They're all terrified. And the most astonishing things happen. The tension is just, it's almost unbearable at times. I was crying at one point. It's its just really, really powerful. Uh, and, you know, their, their phones are taken from them almost immediately. And they're told that they now can reach their families and they will kill anyone on the plane who tries to get word out and their families on the ground because it's a huge network going across Europe. And of course, at the end, we find out just what drove this whole move, this hijacking. Wow. And Idris is sensational. He's just, he he remains calm. He's the voice of reason. He tries to make things work. And, uh, you know, I love him even more for that. All right. Excellent. So that's in theaters, Anne? No, that's on Apple TV. Oh, excellent. A good one. Yes. Amazing. I love when the when great movies come out on these these home cable shows now because that, to me that's everything. I have my popcorn and my pajamas yeah, and I do it at home. <laughs> theaters are suffering because of this, but I think we all agree on that, you know. So yeah. it's it's a tough situation for Hollywood. All right. So you've got uh these and you've got more including fashion, what's it called? Fashion Fashion Reimagined. Fabulous documentary. All right, so that's all over on whatshesaidtalk.com, and you will be back next week with more. I will. Thank you, Candace. Thanks, Ann. Please, you. She's got better day besides. She'll expose you when she snows you. More with Candace Sampson and What She Said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Today, we're taking a virtual tour across Canada's breathtaking landscapes as we explore some hidden gems that you might want to add to your summer travel list. We're honoured to have with us Marie-Hélène Brisson, the Director of Visitor Experience at Parks Canada. When she's not ensuring visitor needs and safety at Parks Canada, Marie-Hélène immerses herself in the beautiful nature and wonderful culture that Canada has to offer. She joins me now to discuss. Thanks so much for joining me, Marie-Hélène. Thank you for having me. So for someone who might be new to exploring Parks Canada locations, could you shed some light on what they should expect and how easy it is to plan a visit? Yeah, um, you should expect beauty, wonders. You should expect to be amazed when you come and visit our national parks or historic sites or national marine conservation areas. Um, I think one of the easiest ways to plan your visits is to actually go on our website or to use our Parks Canada app. Um, there you'll be able to uh, choose by province or by region, depending on where you're going. You'll see a variety of locations. Uh, all of our parks are there, National Historic Sites and Marine Conservation Areas as well. So you can select the sites that interest you on there. You're going to see very easily what those sites have to offer. Guided hikes, interpretive tours, um, camping or roofed accommodations. Everything is uh available at the click of a finger. 
Um, and then you'll be able also to see trail conditions. You'll be able to see um, or even reserve anything that you need on directly the website or the app. I have to say I'm, I'm uh, learning something myself today in that you have an app. I had no idea which is, of course you do. <laughs> but, but why I didn't know that is incredible. So you also have a really extensive portfolio. You cover over 450,000 square kilometers in Canada. So can you share some highlights of what the diversity of the experience in these parks? From one moment, you could be kayaking in the St. Lawrence uh, Marine Conservation Area in Quebec and seeing some seals and some whales. And then the next, you could go in Alberta and see um, Baru Ranch, National Historic Site, and experience the true history from uh, the Stonies or the Blackfoot community. Um, the diversity is just crazy from the landscape that you get to see if it's the prairies beautiful rocky mountains um, or you get to experience fortress of Louisbourg and a french actually fort in eastern canada um and there's just like you mentioned 450,000 square kilometers of stories to tell and i could go on for hours and hours <laughs> <laughs> but with 171 national historic sites 47 national parks um five marine conservation areas and an urban park in toronto um i could go on and on and on and on about the diversity of everything that you get to see i think we have to pause here though and emphasize that it's really important to plan these trips in advance correct it is. Some of our places are really busy and they get booked really quickly. So it's important to plan in advance. You don't want to be disappointed when you get on site and you don't have, let's say, the camping accommodation that you wanted or even the tour and the visit that you wanted. Burgess Shell is an example in your national park that gets really busy. They have to book in advance. Um, so the tip is really to look often on our website or our our app as well uh, to plan your visit. But there's some locations that offer just as much beauty that are, are little hidden gems that you would probably be able to find some nice uh, opportunities a bit more last minute. Well, let's talk about those hidden gems. Can you share a few with us? Yeah, um, I'll share a few of my favorites, personal favorites that I've visited myself uh, with uh, girlfriends or with family, um, or sometimes some of them are more things that I want to put on my bucket list that I want to do. Um, so the first one I can share with you, Candice, is Pakistan National Park. It's in Ontario. That one is actually a bucket list for me. Um, it's located on the shores of Lake Ontario. Um, it has amazing backcountry opportunities if it's something that you like to do or three to eight days. Um, again, plan, but that's something that's fun to do with some girlfriends. Um, but there's also unique opportunities in front country or you can where you can actually book one of our authentics. It's a, a roofed accommodation, A-shaped kind of uh, cabin frame that you stay in. It has six... Uh, availability for six people to sleep in and they're all actually equipped with barbecues and fire pits and chairs so a good relaxing uh, opportunity to do some camping there there's also a wonderful interpretive activity that I would like to do once I, when I go. It's called the Anishinaabe Camp. So we get to explore the rich culture and spiritual and historical uh, heritage uh, of the Anishinaabe people that are actually um, the indigenous community where the park is actually located. I love that. Uh, and you also mentioned we were talking before the interview about the Rideau Canal, and I had the pleasure of doing that last summer, uh, going up and down the Rideau Canal with a, a bunch of girlfriends on the boat. And I was blown away by how beautiful it was. I don't think people understand 
how big the Rideau is and just how gorgeous it is. Yeah, you're you're right. Actually, like the Rideau Canal is a place. I'm I'm from Ottawa, so I get to to enjoy it, but I kind of forget, you know, it, what it is, and I probably take it for granted sometimes. Wonderful bike paths, um, but I love also taking my friends and family when they come into town and go a little bit further, as you mentioned. And the boat is an awesome opportunity. So the boat is actually a self-driven yacht. So you're on it, you take care, you you book it, and you do your own activity through the Rideau Canal. Um, so. Another thing, though, on the Rideau Canal that I really enjoy doing with my family, and perhaps it's something that you, somebody can do that are a bit less familiar with uh, water activities, is the learn to paddle. So the Rideau Canal um, offers an opportunity all summer long, multiple times a week. You can book online to go uh, with a group of uh, at least four people. And you learn how to canoe and to kayak. So if you're a little bit less at ease and a bigger body of water is a bit more scary for you, um, the canal is contained. <laughs> it's beautiful and you get to enjoy uh, a paddle activity through the locks, but with an interpreter um, with you. So I feel like we should definitely touch on the fact that there are a lot of forest fires uh, going on this summer. Uh, where can people find out if that is affecting where they will be visiting mm -hmm. this summer? So you're right, Candice. It's across the country in multiple provinces. Uh, hopefully it slows down, but it did start very early this year. Um, on our Parks Canada website, you will have information. So if you've actually planned and booked some camping, let's say, in a park, uh, I suggest that you go and take a look uh, daily to see uh, the, for the latest reports. Same on our social media channels. We'll be advertising whenever there's a modification. But if you have a reservation, we will definitely communicate with you if we have to cancel or move anything. Um, also, there will be multiple fire bans across the country this year because it is very dry. So please respect those fire bans. It's important. So this way we contribute to making sure that we don't create more of those unfortunate forest fires. Absolutely. And I don't think people realize how big a role Parks Canada plays in our country's tourism industry. So can you just wrap this up by sharing sort of your commitment to providing people with high quality and meaningful experiences? Yeah, as like the biggest uh, of offer of product actually in the country and as a tourism provider, um, we are definitely committed to making sure that your visit is not only safe, but fun and meaningful. Uh, we want people to come back. We want people to enjoy these places. They are yours. Um, at the same time, when people enjoy themselves in our places and take in the nature and take in the history, um, they become stewards for the future in terms of protection and conserving those wonderful places. All right. Excellent. So we're going to uh, put all the links to Parks Canada and that app, and which I'm going to download immediately following this interview. <laughs> we're going to put that in the liner notes of the podcast. I can't thank you enough for joining me. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Candice.
When the York Catholic District School Board decided to not fly the pride flag this month, it reignited discussion and controversy about the funding of Catholic schools within the public system. My next guest has a wealth of experience in global education and development. She also has a deep understanding of the dynamics, issues, and challenges within the education system, not just in Canada, but around the world. Dr. Prachi Srivastava is a tenured associate professor at Western University specializing in education and global development and joins me today to discuss. Welcome back to the show, Prachi. Hi, Candice. Thanks for having me back. So just to kick off the discussion, could you give us an overview of the situation with the funding of Catholic schools in the public system in Canada and why it is such a contentious issue? So I think it's important to understand that um, the, you know, that we have, we have essentially two different systems. And I know people talk about public and Catholic, but actually what we have are public and private systems. And, and Catholic schools are just one, one segment of public schools. And what that means is if we look at, you know, how, how systems are, are managed and run, you, you usually have some combination of the state, in this case, the province, um, and some, and, and some combination of the, of, of the state, either financing, managing, or running schools. Catholic schools are publicly financed. They're fully under the control of the Ministry of Education. And, and they're, and they're also, that means they're also publicly regulated. So when we talk about Catholic schools, they're really just a subset of all public schools. I've always found it odd that in Ontario, there's always this distinction between public schools and Catholic schools, because really they're all part of the same, they're all part of the same system. It's just that Catholic schools are specifically, were specifically created to um, serve a particular community i.e. Catholic people that um, are, you know, have the denomination of, 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 of Catholic. Um, and so as a result, there were different um, criteria for admission. There were different criteria for who, for employment, uh, but they're all really part of the public system. So then we start thinking about what does that mean in terms of inclusion, given that these are now the big questions that we're facing in society. Um, and, and the example of what's happened with LGBT, uh, LGBTQ plus students and the pride flag here really raised the profile of issues around inclusion and exclusion within our public system. So in your perspective, what are the pros and cons of public funding for Catholic schools then, particularly in terms of educational outcomes and diversity? I think really what has ignited the debate is is the question around exclusion, but it's important to understand that exclusion has been part of this of this system throughout. Um, if you are an, if you're if if you're not Catholic, it's very difficult, next to impossible, to actually become a teacher in a Catholic school. If you're if you come from a family that also is not Catholic or can or, or cannot produce that um, certificate at the elementary sector, again, it's almost impossible to actually access those schools. So the question of exclusion has been going on throughout the system. It's just that now we're paying attention to it. And now we're asking questions around financing. How is it that we can publicly support public schools that were created in in a sense to be exclusive and we have to and, and exclusionary we have to be we have to be very mindful of the fact that they are the only denomination of schools that are publicly fi financed all other denominational schools are not publicly financed to the extent that catholic schools are so it's it it really does ask you know raise big questions around how how should if if all public schools should be inclusive 
how should we actually address this issue? And I think it goes beyond just looking at different denominations or, or students from specific backgrounds, but actually understanding that this is a public system, publicly financed, and therefore it needs to be open and accessible to all in terms of employment and also in terms of access as students and as, and, and, and as communities. So are there any policy changes or initiatives that you believe could help address some of these concerns you mentioned? I think now that we're having this discussion and also in, in, in view of the fact that the education budget in Ontario, as in many other parts of the world, has been uh, decreased um, there's been a, 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 a consistent decrease in financing of education in Ontario and will continue to be for the next seven years. And so that is a question that I think is going to be raised in terms of how to better manage our systems. Uh, does that mean that we'll have an amalgamation of schools? I mean, I don't know. I'm not privy to those to those conversations. But in other provinces, for example, our neighboring, our neighboring province of Quebec used to have a similar system, Protestant and Catholic schools, and then later on became uh, linguistic. Now, of course, there are issues with that too in Quebec because of the proportion of, uh, you know, the demography there in terms of, you know, which schools get more financing because of the linguistic issues. But having said that, um, there might be some, there might be some considerations. Uh, I don't imagine that it's going to be an easy discussion. And I don't imagine that anything is going to change, uh, you know, particularly quickly. I think these are really big fundamental questions of, of identity. And, 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 and education and schools are fundamentally a cultural and a political, uh, you know, product. I mean, we, of course, there's the technical function, which is very important in terms of learning and achievement and outcomes and, you know, all of the things that we want our schools to achieve. But at the end of the day, they really are a cultural and political product. And so we should expect that it's going to be messy. But I do think that the time has come to have this conversation about how do we make our public systems truly inclusive to all students. All right. Excellent. Well, as always, you always bring great insight to these conversations around education, Prachi. Uh, where can people keep up with you? I, mean, I know you're always sharing great information. Where's the best place for people to connect? Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Mastodon. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can email me via my uh, University of Western Ontario email. All right. Perfect. We're going to put all those, link when the, all those links in the podcast when it goes live. And thank you. We'll have you back again soon. Thanks, Candice. Thanks for having me on the show. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. that movement is vital to our physical health, but how often do we link it to the harmony and rhythm of nature? My next guest invites us to explore a unique perspective that might change how we approach our daily exercises, especially when it comes to our children. 
Amanda Morin is an accomplished physiotherapist who has dedicated her career to empowering her patients with knowledge and choice through their healing journeys. Drawing from her experiences as an athlete and her innate passion for the human body, she takes a holistic approach, treating the body, mind, and spirit as one. She joins me now to discuss her children's book called Move with Nature, an invitation to little ones to explore exercise through the lens of nature using movements they can easily mimic. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So your book, Move with Nature, it's a very unique concept. So can you tell us about the inspiration behind it and why it's so important to introduce children to this way of movement? Yeah, absolutely. So I did some work with children um, actually at Holland Blueview when I was in physio school on my placement. And I just remember it being so incredibly fun to really create exercise and rehab as play. Uh, and then I was really blessed to go down to South Africa with my sister's nonprofit organization uh, two years in a row. And I worked with children with various neurological conditions. And when you're in a rural community in that part of the world, you don't have a lot of resources at your disposal. So I was really challenged to use the world around me to really encourage and inspire how I was working with these individuals. And it kind of started that whole idea of nature and movement all working together. And then during the pandemic, I actually just shared this idea with the right person. And uh, I was afforded lots of time during the pandemic to just work and put together some of this passion project. And that's kind of how Move With Nature was born. And you also have experience in competitive sports. So how did that influence the way you approach uh, the creation of this book? Yeah, so growing up, I played many sports, but soccer was my main one. Um, and I was always, I always had like knee problems and I was always injured and I never quite received the amount of care or treatment that I needed. Um, and so I look back and I think to myself, wow, if I was given different tools, if I was even developed in different ways, you know, with different hip strength and stability, even as a teenager, I was like, that could have been so pivotal for me to have so much prevention through injury and building that body awareness. And through work, working with children and younger individuals, I see how much of that awareness is lacking, especially nowadays. I just don't find kids and people, even parents are moving as much as they used to. Um, so I really thought, hmm, let's get children moving and aware of our bodies from the start and not let some of these things occur later on in life. I love it. And I also love that Move With Nature caters to children of all abilities. Why was this aspect of inclusivity so important to you? Yeah. So I always think like being inclusive doesn't stop with just like race or religion. I wanted it to really include like geographic inclusivity, you know, animals and nature from all around the world. Um, and of course, physical ability. We all have different physical abilities. And so I think that movement doesn't discriminate. Everyone can move and everyone can benefit from it. Um, so a lot of the actions like I chose were easy to either adapt to different individuals, um, but also I wanted children, like every child that opens up the book, to be able to find themselves in it. And that, again, if they're in a wheelchair, hearing aids, CP braces, these are things that are commonly found in our society. And I don't, I don't know why children don't find themselves in the books and why it isn't just more widespread and accessible to them. 
I love it. One of my, my most favorite expressions is you can't be what you can't see. So I love that you've you've brought that to the forefront for, for everybody. Uh, your book is really an excellent tool for parents and educators and caregivers. So how can they best utilize Move With Nature to inspire and engage children under their care? Yeah, absolutely. So I find like a lot of my rehab friends as well who work with children, they love it as like a warm up or like an engagement tool. So like before exercise or before they're going to go out to play or they're going to do their rehab exercises, you know, they pick a few of the movements that the kids really like or even are challenged with. And then the parents together do it. And it really helps to bring adults and children together. And I find it also helps with just family bonding in general as well, which is kind of nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, every action is chosen very specifically. So even if with guidance of different rehab professionals can help um, parents and educators to understand which ones might be more helpful for different children. Uh, but overall, it's really just it's supposed to be fun. And so if the kids like jumping like a kangaroo or balancing like a flamingo, then let's do that. And let's do it. What makes the child find joy? Because movement and exercise is supposed to be fun. Well, I have to say this book is uh, perfect, perfect timing. It is, I can almost hear the cries of I'm bored already as we head into our first week of July here. So uh, before we before we go, any quick tips for, for parents uh, as they approach summer, getting their kids outside? Yeah, get involved with them. I think like we have to lead by example as adults. And I think, you know, putting our phones down, being really present, getting up and moving, playing, kicking, throwing, you know, even if you're sore yourself as a grown up, you know, just keep yourself moving. And I think if you can lead by example and show them that this is something that everyone does, I think that really is pivotal in setting that example for the younger kids to really see. All right. Amazing. I want people to be able to find the book, Amanda, and keep up with you. So how can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So my physio website, aemphysio.com, uh, um, there is a whole page where you can find the book, but you can also search Move With Nature, Amanda Morin um, on Google and Amazon should come up. And it's also available on Indigo. And it's also available online in the States as well, amazon.com and Barnes and Noble. Incredible. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.